Heavenly Father, thank you that we can uh, encounter Jesus uh, in this living word. We pray that your spirit who gave us this word will be working in our hearts and lives, uh, that we might hear his voice and that we might love him and follow him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Nirvana. That's a Buddhist philosophical term that literally means extinction or extinguishing. It's also the name of a banana leaf restaurant in Bangsa, which has got very good food. And it's also the name of a band. Actually, there's quite a few bands called Nirvana. And one of those bands sings a song which I understand was originally written by Kiss. It goes like this. You really like my limousine. You like the way the wheels roll. You like my seven-inch leather heels. And going to all the shows. But, do you love me? Really love me? Do you love me? You like the credit cards and private planes? Money can really take you far. You like the hotels and fancy clothes and the sound of electric guitars. But, do you love me? Really love me? Do you love me? You really like rock and roll, all of the fame and masquerade. You like the concerts and studios and all the money, honey that I make. But do you love me? Really love me? Do you love me? Your backstage pass and black sunglasses make you look just like a queen. Even the fans, they know your face from all the magazines. But do you love me? Really love me? Do you love me? Last week we saw that sometime after the risen Jesus had appeared to his disciples, Peter and six other disciples went fishing. They'd been fishing all night, but they caught nothing. A man on the shore called out to them and said, throw your nets on the other side. And when they did, there were so many fish they had trouble hauling in the net. And John realized it was Jesus and he told Peter and Peter jumped into the water and swam to the shore and the rest, they came in with a boat with a net full of fish and when they got to the shore, remember what Jesus was doing? He was cooking breakfast for them, wasn't he? Serving them. And once again feeding his disciples. Well, this incident must have been a bit of a deja vu for the disciples. The kind of uh, of incident with the nets and the fish happened once before. Uh, we saw that as well. Way back when Jesus was first calling them, uh, Luke tells us about it in Luke 5. It wasn't quite the same. Jesus at the time had been preaching to the people on the people on the shore. He'd been preaching from, uh, from, uh, from Simon's boat. And then when he finished, he told Simon to let down the nets. And Simon initially protested that they'd been working hard all night, couldn't catch anything. And he still let the nets down. And when they did, there were so many fish, the net began to break. And the French mother boat came to help them to stop the boat from singing, uh, from, from, from sinking. And, you know, and Simon saw this. He fell at Jesus' feet. And he said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats on the shore, they left everything to follow him, to catch men for his kingdom. And that's when Peter and his friends first became Jesus' disciples. And so here at the end of John's Gospel, John reports to us another catch of fish. It's, it's obviously not the same incident, right? but there's enough similarity for, for John to realize straight away that the guy who called out to them from the shore must have been Jesus. 
But why was Jesus doing this miracle? Why would he do a virtual rerun of another miracle he did three years beforehand? We'll find out after breakfast. Their breakfast, not ours. <laughs> after breakfast, Jesus had a chat with Simon Peter. You may recall that Simon was the man who denied Jesus. Uh, back in John 13 at the Last Supper, Peter had insisted he was going to lay down his life for Jesus. And Jesus said instead he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And he did. And the servant girl at the door of the high priest asked, Are you one of Jesus' disciples? Peter says, I am not. When he's warming himself by the fire, someone comes and asks him if he's one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter says, I am not. When the relative of the man who Peter has cut his, whose ears Peter had cut in a misguided attempt to defend uh, Jesus, con confronted him, and he said, didn't I see you with Jesus? And, and, and Peter said, no, 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 no. And then the rooster had begun to crow. Peter had cried bitterly. He had denied his Lord three times. And after breakfast, Jesus had a chat with Peter. And he asked him a question. That same question that Nirvana and countless other poets have asked in different ways to different people for different reasons. John chapter 21 and verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Now, I don't think he's asking Peter to compare his love with the love of the other disciples. Remember what Peter's doing, where he is at? He's gone back to his life in Galilee, back to how he was before. With the boats, the fish, the fishing, the friends, everything that goes into the whole Lake of Galilee fisherman experience. And Jesus says to him, Do you love me more than, than these? And all these things. Do you love me more than that? Simon says to him, second half of verse 15, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And then he asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Why are you asking this? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What do you think Jesus is doing here? Is he insecure about Peter's love? Hardly. The risen Christ isn't insecure about anything. I mean, and furthermore, he doesn't need to ask. Peter himself says, he knows what's in a man's heart. He knows everything. He's asking for Peter's sake, not his own. 
Some people have pointed out the fact that the words for love and the questions are different words in the Greek. There's probably not much significance there. Uh, scholars now tell us the actual difference in these Greek words for love aren't significant, as significant as, as previous generations of preachers seem to have thought. They're, they're used here as synonyms to, 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 to say the same thing. Probably the same thing for the sheep and lambs, not two classes of Christians that Jesus is referring to, just, just different ways of saying the same thing. Uh, will you be a shepherd among God's people? So why do you think he's asking three times? It's really the same thing over and over again. Well, take a little break and turn to the person next to you and see if you can come up with a little theory as to why Jesus asked the same question three times. Just ask the person next to you, what do you think? You don't have to have the answer. I'll tell you afterwards. But just try and see. Go on, talk to each other. Okay. All right. Any ideas? What are your ideas? Jew has an answer. I don't think he does want to share it. And I'm not sure I want Jew to share it, actually. <laughs> Anybody else have an answer? <laughs> Any ideas? Yeah, very good. Well done, Jew. <laughs> yes, remember back in chapter 18, Peter denied Jesus three times, isn't it? And for every time Peter denied Jesus, Jesus gives him an opportunity to express his love. Three times Peter denies Jesus, three times Jesus asks, do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes. And three times Jesus commissions him to feed his flock. Jesus is restoring Peter. He's rehabilitating him, giving him another chance. Giving him once again a place as a leader among God's people. Isn't that amazing? That makes sense then, doesn't it? Why Jesus performs this miracle here. Why he gives a miraculous catch of fish like he did the first time he called them. Because he's like, he's taking the disciples back to the beginning of their ministry. He's giving them a fresh start. Peter and to a lesser extent the others, but certainly Peter in a big way had failed him. And now he's starting with them all over again. And we can't go on, can we, without pausing just for at least for a moment to reflect on the mercy and generosity of Jesus. How kind he was to Peter, even when Peter had disowned him. And how compassionate and merciful he is to weak sinners like us, who, let's face it, stuff up as well. You ever deny Jesus? By your words or your actions? You, you've been ashamed of him? And are you sorry now? You want another chance? Jesus restored Peter. 
He brought him back to the beginning, gave him a chance to start all over again. That is what Jesus is like. He is merciful, generous, and he can restore us. He might have failed him in the past, but he can use us again. Because that's what he's like. But let's think a little bit more about the question that Jesus asked Peter. The thing that he wants Peter to declare before he will reinstate him. The big question that he wants Peter to answer is, Do you love me? Do you love me? He doesn't say to Peter, Have you now understood all there is to understand about how I fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures? Mind you, the risen Christ spent a lot of time with his disciples, teaching them and showing them how he fulfilled all the Old Testament scriptures. It's a big theme of his, of his uh, post-resurrection teaching to them. Very important. But that's not the bottom line. The bottom line for Jesus is, do you love me? Jesus doesn't ask Peter about his abilities, his theology, his goal for ministry. Nothing. All those things are important. All those things are important. But they're not the ultimate question. The ultimate question for Jesus is, do you love me? Jesus doesn't even ask Peter how he intends to make sure this denial incident never happens again. What he wants to know is, do you love me? Friends, we at SMAC emphasize the Bible. Solid Bible teaching. That's one of our taglines, and rightly so. It's right that we stress Bible study. It's right that we stress the exposition of Scripture. But friends, we want to know the Bible well so that we know Jesus better and therefore love Him more. Knowing the Bible well is a means to an end, not an end in itself. We at Smack are also very careful about false teaching. And it is right that we are discerning. We must be careful about theology because we must get it right when it comes to knowing Jesus because we want the correct Jesus. We want to know the correct Jesus. We want to love the correct Jesus. Because in the end, what we are really aiming for is to grow in our love for Jesus. Knowledge is important. But love is even more important than knowledge. If Jesus spoke to us today, he won't be asking, have you memorized the books of the Bible? Have you worked out how to explain the passage? Can you remember all the memory verses of two ways to live? But what he asks is, do you love me? We in Smek are keen to be involved in evangelism. We want to bring the gospel to those who, who don't yet know Jesus. We want to tell the world that Jesus is Lord, that he died for our sins, that he rose again. We want to see more and more people come into God's kingdom. Why? Because we love Smek? No, because we love Jesus. That's why. And we must never, never, never lose sight of that. We must never lose our love for Jesus. 
Because if we do, then we are simply activists. Everyone has a cause. We know that, particularly this weekend, don't we? But if we don't love Jesus, then we're just having a cause. To promote our church, our denomination, our group, or whatever it is. But friends, we don't just work for a cause, we work for a king. We work for our king because we love our king. We love our king because he first loved us. And whatever we do, we do it because we love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? If we have all faith, all knowledge, all zeal, all courage, but have not love, then we are nothing. Jesus says, I died for you. Took your sins on the cross to rescue you. Paid the ultimate price for your salvation. It's great that you know all about me. It's great that you serve me. But do you love me? And if you love Jesus, how do you express it? You can do so verbally. You can say to him, Lord, I love you. That's what Peter did. That's good. But that's not enough. Peter's love for Jesus was to be expressed in service. And in particular, service to God's people. And so every time he says, yes, I love you, Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Now, none of us have the same role as Peter in the feeding of God's flock. Peter's a unique apostle. But, but Peter himself, many years later, wrote to some church leaders in this way. It's coming up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that has been revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The task of shepherding God's flock, Jesus gave it to Peter, but not just to Peter, but to, but to all the leaders of God's people, the elders here. And if you're a leader in any word ministry then make sure that you are feeding your flock. Make sure the people that you are serving are being nourished with God's word. That is your role among God's people. Do it because you love Jesus. And for the rest of us who aren't really leaders, well, our love for Jesus is still shown in how we treat God's people, isn't it? The Apostle John says in his epistle, if we claim to love God, we hate our brothers, then we are liars. We will love God's people, we will serve God's people, we will work together with God's people to promote the gospel, and we will do all those things because we love Jesus. Loving Jesus means serving Jesus. Serving Jesus means serving his people. And serving Jesus costs. Jesus' love for us was not cheap love. It cost him dearly. His, his death on the cross. And our love for Jesus is not cheap love either. 
You don't love someone if you're not prepared to make sacrifices, real sacrifices for them. And so after charging Peter to feed his sheep, Jesus warned him about what it would mean for him to take up this responsibility. Verse 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you and, and where to, to, to where you do not want to go. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. See, Peter, like his master, would die a violent death. He would be martyred. It would be something that he doesn't want to do. It's not something that he'd wish for. Uh, we saw a few weeks ago, he loved to be in control, but he would lose control. He would be led where he didn't want to go. He would die the kind of death he didn't want to die. And yet, by his death, he would glorify God. That is the cost of love. Jesus told Peter how he would die. You ever wonder how you're going to die? It's a morbid thought, isn't it? Literally. But unless our Lord returns first, then we will die. Now, we don't know how we're going to die. Jesus hasn't told us like he told Peter. Who knows? Some of us may be martyred. Let me tell you, that's even worse than being tear-guessed. But then... Jesus is even more important than fair elections, isn't he? We may glorify God by being killed for our faith in Jesus. Well, be prepared for that. Though for most of us, I think it's unlikely. But however it may be, we love Jesus, and so we want to glorify God in our death, just as we want to glorify God in our life. And we can glorify God in our death by our patience, by our endurance, by our transparent hope of eternal life, our faithfulness to the Christ who died for us and, and, uh, and, and rose again even as we die. A few years ago, one of my aunts died. I had the privilege of being with her for about 24 hours, the last 24 hours of her life. And I tell you, her love for Jesus shone through that day. When her non-Christian friends came to visit her on her deathbed, she pleaded with them. She grasped their... She, hard to breathe. She's pleading with them. I want to see you in heaven. And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll see you in heaven. She said, you can only get there through Christ. I was telling them. And I spoke to her about her confidence in Christ and his death. She's able to nod vigorously. Yes, yes. She knew her Savior. She panted for breath. She reminded us of the fact that she'd be meeting her Lord and her work would be evaluated to see if she built with gold or silver or hay or stubble. Or... Can't get around that. She asked me to make sure that John 11:14 went into her obituary. The sickness would not end in death. No, it is God's glory that the Son of God might be glorified through it. She wanted to glorify God, not just in her life, but in her death. You know, whenever our friends or loved ones are ill, and when our way are ill, we pray for healing. That is right. And we keep on praying for healing, even when it looks like God has got something else in mind. And it's not wrong, but sometimes we can have so much of a one-track mind that we keep on praying for healing, 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 and we forget to pray that if God wills for them or for us to die, that we will die a good death. And that we will glorify God in how we die. 
was John Wesley responding to someone who was criticizing Methodism, who said, at any rate, our people die well. Peter would glorify God by dying as a martyr. Jesus warned him about it beforehand. If I was going to die a martyr's death, I think I'd prefer not to know it until just beforehand. Because just imagine going through life with the knowledge that it's just going to be it. You know, the next guy comes along, is this going to be the one who's going to be? But it was important for Peter to know, and important for the other disciples to know as well. Why? Because remember, Peter had denied his Lord. And the prophecy of Jesus assures him and assures them that next time it's going to be different. That next time he will be faithful. What happened in the past was no indication of the future. The forgiven Peter will be given the Spirit and be made a new man. And Peter would indeed follow Jesus all the way to death and glorify God. And so after Peter, Jesus had told him this and warned him about his future, then, as he had three years before, when Peter first became a disciple, he says to him, verse 20, after saying these things, after calling him, warning him, all those things, he said to him, Follow me. Follow me. Well, when Jesus said those heavy words, what do you think Peter did? He followed Jesus? Well, have a look at verse 21 and 20 and 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and said, Lord, who is it that... Sorry, let me say that again. Read it in a better way. Okay? Uh, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus... Lord, what about this man? It's a bit comical, really. Did you, you see? Jesus having this really serious talk with Peter about, you know, do you love me? Yes, you love me. Okay, yeah, I'm talking to you about your future death, your martyrs. Challenge him. Okay, you follow me. And what does he do? Peter turns around, sees the other side of it. What about him? <laughs> it's like kids. You know, you tell one kid to go to bed at 8 o'clock and he goes, point the sister up. What about her? Peter must be thinking, I'm not going to do this martyrdom thing alone, okay? It's one thing, it was a general requirement of all your disciples. They have to go through it, you know, that's okay. But, yeah, but if John doesn't have to do it, that's not fair. Why do I have to go to bed at 8 o'clock when my older sister gets to stay up to 10? What do you tell your son when he says that? She's different from you? She's older? She needs less sleep anyway? She had a rest today. She's in afternoon school. Doesn't wake, have to wake up so early. She doesn't have an exam tomorrow. But suppose you couldn't really explain to your son all the different reasons why the situation from your daughter is different from, 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 uh, from, from hers. Either because he is too young to understand or it involves something confidential between you and her or he just feels none of his business. What do you say? You can say something like this. Son, you have to go to bed at 8 o'clock because that is what's best for you. 
As far as your sister is concerned, that is a completely different story and has nothing to do with you. Even if I wanted her to stay up until midnight, that is entirely between her and me. You don't have to worry about her bedtime. I will sort that out. I am her father. All I want you to do is obey me and go to bed when I tell you. Good luck, huh? <laughs> that is essentially what Jesus says to Peter. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? What is that to you? Mind your own business, Peter. And then he patiently and graciously repeats his call to Peter again. He says, You follow me. You Follow me. Friends, there are ways that God treats us together corporately. There are also ways in which God treats us individually. His plan for my life is different from His plan for your life. And for your life. And for your life. And for your life. Of course, his overall plan for us is the same, that we should glorify God by becoming more and more like Christ. But the details, how we get from here to there, that's going to be different, isn't it? And we must not compare how he treats us with how he treats our brothers and sisters. Cannot compare. We mustn't look at each other and say, how come this person seems to have it so easy when I have to struggle all so much? How come the road for discipleship seems to involve so much more sacrifice for me than for my brother over there? How come she is given so many gifts that I'm not? What is that to you, Jesus says? You follow me. Don't compare. John doesn't actually tell us how Peter responds to that call of Jesus. Given twice. The other parts of the New Testament tell us that he went on to become a great leader in the early church. That he courageously and faithfully preached the gospel. But John doesn't tell us that. He just leaves it open. And by doing that, he causes us to reflect on the call of Jesus for ourselves. And I wonder if there's anyone here like Peter, needs to hear that call again. Maybe you heard Jesus call you many years ago and you followed him, but somehow or other, like Peter, you lost your way. Maybe you made some bad decisions. Maybe the cost got too high. Maybe you looked at other Christians and got disillusioned. Maybe you just drifted. But today you know that Jesus is risen. You know that he loves you and died for you. And you know deep down inside that you still love him. And Jesus calls you as he called Peter. He forgives you as he forgave Peter. He warns you that it won't be easy. Following him will be tough. You will endure suffering and persecution that you won't want to face. 
And you can't look at other people and say, what about them, Lord? And yet Jesus will keep you as you walk with him on your path. His path for you. path that is different from everyone else's. And through your pain, you will bring glory to God. And you will do that because you love him. And you love him because he loves you. He's warned you of the cost. And again he says to you, as he said to you all those years ago, follow me. Will you, like Peter, follow Jesus once again? And in doing so, will you love him and serve his people? Now, anyone who has been in a community of people, including a church community, for some time, will know that misunderstandings are common. In fact, they are almost guaranteed. And rumors start based on those misunderstandings. I can't, I, I, I've lost count of the number of things I've heard about myself, but it's completely not true. Well, that's what happened after this incident. Have a look at verse 23. So a saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Now notice the rumour is among the brothers. Eh? Not, 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 the, uh, not the twelve. This is later Christians who heard about this. All right. um, John wants to squash the rumour. And how does he do it? He does it in the second half of verse 23. He says, Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? I'm not saying he's not going to die. He's saying so it's none of your business. If I want him to stay alive until I come, what's nothing to do with you? All right? So the rumor goes round that John is not going to die. But, but rumors can be harmful, can't they? This one would have been very harmful if he was allowed to go on. Because when John eventually did die, it would look like the prophecy of Jesus didn't come true. And that would undermine the faith of God's people. Misunderstandings sometimes are just funny. Sometimes they are serious, and sometimes they can be dangerous. And they're particularly dangerous when people think God has promised something when he hasn't promised it. Jesus never promised that John wouldn't die. It was only his well-meaning but mistaken brothers who thought that he did. And even today we've got similar kind of thing, haven't we? We have got well-meaning but mistaken Christians who think that God has promised all kinds of things which he hasn't promised. Jesus never said that Christian life would be easy. He didn't promise health and wealth to everyone who follows him, but there are people who think that he does. And these rumors got to be squashed. Because when they don't come true, it will look like the promises of God have failed. And the faith of God's people will be undermined. So how do you squash a rumor? Well, you just simply tell the truth, don't you? And that's what John does. In fact, this is the spot where he outs himself. All the time, he's simply been referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And now, he says, well, that, that disciple is, is me. Verse 24, this is the disciple. Who is bearing witness about these things? 
Right? Makes sense so far? The disciple whom Jesus loved right through this is actually John, the author of the book, who is bearing witness. And then he reads something that seems a little bit strange to our ears. He says, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, why does he write that? Why is it in the plural? Right? Some people think this is John's disciples adding this bit here in support of what John has been writing. It's possible, but it's a little bit odd to me because John is the apostle. He's the eyewitness. Why does he, another, his, his, his second generation of Christians, his disciples, to vouch for his testimony? That's, he's got more credibility than them. And some people think John is writing in the plural, we. Right? When he really means I, but he's using the royal we kind of thing. We know his testimony is true. It means I know I'm writing true love. Well, could be, but a little bit strange as well because he refers back to I in verse 25 when he's talking about himself. Bit of a mystery, but think about it with me. A little bit, the next bit is just, just my theory, and I think it might be right. Who is in the position to confirm or deny what John has written? It's not John's disciples, it's who is it? It's the other disciples of Jesus, isn't it? It's the, it's the other apostles. Uh, and if that's the case, then the re-referred to here might be the, the other apostles. He's saying, look, I'm writing this, I know it's true, but it's not just me, the other, the other apostles are together with me in saying this. And if this is true, then John is actually linking this passage at the end of the book to John chapter 1, verse 14, at the beginning of the book. Because right at the beginning of the book, we find that plural we again. It says, the word became flesh and dwell among us, and we have seen his glory. That's the apostles, isn't it? We, those who are with Jesus, have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came and revealed God. John and the other apostles experienced that firsthand, and they write down truthfully, authoritatively, write it down for us. John writes it down. The other apostles who are alive, then yes, we agree with him, that we too can know and love God in Jesus. Now, the witness of the apostles is truthful, it is authoritative, it is definitive, but it's not exhaustive. Verse 25. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, I'm not thinking that John intended us to take this literalistically. Right? If you insist on thinking it that way, it's true love. You know, you could write, and Jesus' heart beat again. He took another breath. He thought about this. His intestines continues to digest his lunch, and etc., etc. You could get on the whole world of books of that kind. But then, um, you could write literally millions of volumes about everyone, anyone, couldn't you? Just depends how much detail you want to go. But that's silly. It's not really what John is saying. There's two things that he could be saying. Firstly, he could be saying that Jesus did many, many more miracles and taught many things that John couldn't just fit in. And he's simply using hyperbole as a rhetorical device to emphasize it. Saying, big, you know, so many more things. That could be it. Or secondly, he could be going back to the Word made flesh. Remember John 1.14 just now we talked about? Uh, he's going, he's, at the end, he's going back to the beginning, right? Uh, and maybe it's going back all the way back to the beginning, to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? That is, the story of what Jesus, uh, story of Jesus and what he's done is, isn't limited to what John has written about. Jesus, Jesus is eternal. He's the one through whom all things were created. He really is infinite. And what John has written is just a story of his, of his life here. And, and no library on earth could conceivably exhaust all the riches of, 
of what Jesus, the Word, has done for all eternity. Even if you can change all the books to electronic form, you still won't exhaust it. Well, either way, John reminds us he can't tell us everything. He hasn't told us everything. We can know Jesus truly without knowing about him exhaustively. You can know God truly, you can know Jesus truly, without knowing him exhaustively. Right? We don't know everything there is to know about anyone, not even your spouse, let alone the eternal Son of God. You don't know everything there is to know about me. I don't know everything there is to know about me. We don't know everything about anyone, actually. But we do know enough to know, to love, to trust some people and not others. Is that right? We don't know everything about anyone, but we know enough to love and to trust some people. And friends, the Bible tells us everything that we need to know to be able to trust Jesus, to be able to believe in Him and have eternal life, and it tells us everything that we need to know in order to love Jesus and serve his people. And in the end, that's all we need to know, because that's all we need to do. Believe in Jesus and love him. Do you believe in Jesus? You trust him as the Son of God, your Savior? And if you believe in Jesus, then do you love him? Do you love him more than anything else in the world? More than the fish in the boats? More than the books and the distinctions? More than the career and the recognition? More than the car and the house? More than the planes and the hotels? More than the kids and the school? More than the property and the portfolio? Do you love me, says Jesus, more than all these? Then serve me by serving my people. Don't worry about the others. You follow me, even unto death. And trust the testimony of the apostles who speak about me truly, even though not exhaustively. And that brings us to the end of not just our passage, but of John's Gospel. We started the sermon by reading a song from Nirvana. Let me end by reading a hymn by William Cowper. Hark, my soul, it is the Lord. Tis thy Saviour, hear his word. Jesus speaks and speaks to thee. Say, poor sinner, lovest thou me? I delivered thee when bound, and when bleeding healed thy wound, sought thee wandering, set thee right, turned thy darkness into light. Can a woman's tender care cease toward the child she bear? Yes, she may forgetful be, yet will I remember thee. Mine is an unchanging love, higher than the heights above, deeper than the depths beneath, free and faithful, strong as death. Thou shalt see my glory soon, when the work of grace is done, partner of my throne shall be. Say, poor sinner, lovest thou me? And the answer? Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore.
Oh, for grace to love Thee more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us. That you have come into this world to reveal the Father to us. To die for us. And to rise again to show us who you are. Lord, we know that there are many ways in which we have failed you. In many ways that we have not lived up to the calling that you have called us to. And we know that we rest entirely on your grace and your mercy. And in response to that question that we have heard you ask Peter today, we want to say, yes, Lord. We love you. We love you not because of ourselves, but because you have loved us. We love you and we want to serve you and follow you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to do that. As you transform Peter by your Spirit, so transform us. Make us a people who love you truly and therefore obey you from the heart and serve your people. Help us not to worry about the path that the others are taking, not to be jealous or despondent, but to trust that you know what is best for them and you know what is best for us. Thank you for all the things that you have taught us. Through the Apostle John, whom you have appointed, whom you have given your Spirit, who has borne witness about you, that we can know you truly and love you. Keep us firm. Keep us trusting. Keep us loving, we pray. For your sake and your glory. Amen.